Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. How's it going, everybody? You are listening to the Famous Dead People podcast, the only podcast that resurrects people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. I'm your host, Jarrett Berenson, and we have got a fantastic show for you today. You're about to hear my interviews with early 20th century English writer Virginia Woolf and 37th president of the United States, the only president to have ever resigned, Richard Milhouse Nixon. It was a fascinating talk, uh, really funny ep. A uh, couple of quick announcements before we get into the meat and potatoes. We've got the live Famous Dead People coming up on Monday, May 7th. That's in less than two weeks at 8 p.m. at the Crane Theater. Mark your calendars, buy your tickets. Go on Facebook, click yes to the invite. You're going to want to see this show. It's going to be incredible. That's Famous Dead People Live at the Crane Theater, Monday, May 7th at 8 p.m. Also, as always, you're going to want to check out my book, The Kellyanne Conway Technique, my website, jarrettbarenstein.com, my improv team, Junior Varsity, every Thursday, The Magnet at 7 p.m., and of course, rate and review the podcast. Tell your friends, and if you want to hear the episodes the day they come out, that's every Monday at 3 p.m. only on Radio Free Brooklyn. But for now, you're here for this. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Richard Nixon and Virginia Woolf on Famous Dead People. Famous dead people. It's time. Famous dead people. Time to start the show. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Famous dead people. Oh, you know, famous dead people, famous dead people, the story stuck in the head, you're gonna hear awful phone even though all these people are dead. My guest today on Famous Dead People are early 20th century English writer Virginia Woolf. Good afternoon. And 37th president of the United States, the only president to have ever resigned from office, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Thank you for that. Happy to be here. Uh, Mr. President, Ms. Wolf, thank you so much for joining us here on Famous Dead People. The pleasure is all mine. Yes, happy to be here. Uh, now, I'd like to start with you, uh, Ms. Wolf. Uh, as an author, you were a pioneer of the use of stream of consciousness as a narrative choice. Indeed. Is that correct? Yes, of all right. course. Now, could you describe how you would use, like, stream of consciousness to tell a story? You know, like, I, when I think about writing a book, I think about, like, you know, plotting the, you know, uh, the story, everything that's going to happen in it. But if you're just following your brain wherever it goes, I don't see how you, you, you get to those narrative points. Well, I could tell you how I do that, or I could show you. Oh, that would be wonderful. So, I'll start a stream of consciousness right now. I'm talking to you, and we're here in this lovely studio here in Brooklyn, New York. And Brooklyn, New York makes me think of Coney Island with the hot dogs at Nathan's. And Nathan makes me think of my ex-lover, Nathan, who once tried to drown me in a river. And rivers make me actually think of The River by Billy Joel, my favorite song. And my favorite song, Billy Joel. Can I? Joel. I'm, I'm so sorry. Do you mind if I interrupt you really quickly, Virginia Woolf? Um, okay, sorry. You just, I was kind of in the zone there, but yes. I mean, that was that was great. That was that was exceptional uh, stream of conscious. Um, was that exactly... How it would work in the book? Like, would you say that makes me think of, that makes me think of every <laughs> yes. time you would change? Yes, yes. If you do a word search for that makes me think of mm -hmm. all of my texts, you'll find it approximately 10,507 times. Oh, my God. Yes, there's very, that makes me think of is a very operative term in literature, in my opinion. That makes me think of. Yes. If you look at all the great authors, most of them say that makes me think of a I lot in their books. I don't think they do, though. I think they do. Well, and that makes me think of 
great literature. Mm-hmm. So, so here's my question. So you're writing a book, yeah. all right? Book's got a lot of different characters in it, uh-huh. okay? And it comes time for a character to say something. You know, this character's going to say, like, a sentence, you know, like, um, like, get out of my house or... You know, I love you, and here's why. Would that character then also have the same stream of consciousness that you are having as you write in the book? Yes, exactly. We would, I would, then it would be a different stream. So think of it, I'm in my stream of consciousness, then I start writing in a character. And then I jump midstream into their consciousness. So I might be thinking, oh, I'm here in the studio today with Jared Bernstein. And Jared looked at me while I was talking and Jared was thinking to himself, oh, Virginia's talking an awful lot. And that makes me think of talk shows. And that makes me think of <laughs> Phil Donahue. And that makes me think of Jerry Springer. And that makes me think of love. Wow. I, it is, it's incredible how that stream of consciousness can actually help you to get around to a very poignant uh, story development. Yes, you know? and this, in this case, the story development is that you are in love with. I'm me. in love with you, with you, Virginia Woolf. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, that's not something that I had considered. Well, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Nixon. I'm sure that uh, you know you probably have a a keen grasp on you know literature, finer literature. Um, does this sound like something that you would enjoy? I know that you. Um, tried to join a, a literary society when you were in college. So obviously you have opinions about about uh, English writing and things like that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I do, when I do my dictations, I do find that I say that makes me think of probably 19 times in every hour. So, so if you were like giving an inner office memo when you're president of the United States, mm-hmm. you would sometimes say that makes me think of in the middle of one of your memos? Well, at least 19 times per hour. Oh, interesting. Yes, and as you know, as everyone knows, I was recorded yes. around the clock. Yes. Yes, and I believe... Lots of questions about that, trust oh, me. Oh, yes. I, I look forward to them. Uh, and I do have to say that that makes me think of was a common phrase. It was a common phrase used by everyone in the Oval Office. But what if you were trying to write a memo about something really specific, like you presided over the end of the Vietnam War, and that's very, that's incredible, an incredible accomplishment. Would have been, yes. All right, and so, um, I'm sorry, did you say would have been? Well, yes. I mean, I did preside over that, but it was mainly Henry Kissinger and everybody else. I was a little consumed at that time with... Other dealings. Oh, interesting. I can't wait to hear all about this. All right. So let's say hypothetically, you're going to write a memo about the end of the Vietnam War. Right. All right. I I, am imagining that saying that makes me think of would would sort of like veer you off of the original intention of the memo. Is that not right? Well, it certainly could, but I don't give a shit because it's up to me to tell them what to do. And really, it was a stream of consciousness and I needed to get things off my chest. They knew that. Everyone Mm. knew that. And so the president can do what the president needs to do. That is um, a, a, a famous sentiment that you had about the presidency. Well, He's the big buck. You can do whatever you want. Right. Um, and I do have more questions about that. But let me ask you just, let's say hypothetically, you're going to write a memo about we got to end this Vietnam War. Sure. Okay. So like, let's say, just, so give me this memo as you're going to be dictating it. Well, the Vietnam War has been going on way too long. It doesn't look like anyone, it doesn't look like we have any successful strategy in place. Which is uh, makes me think of the time that I asked Mrs. Nixon to the movies. She did not want to go. And so I said, well, are you going to go with someone else? She said, yes, of course. I asked if I could drive her. 
And she said, driving, that makes me think of my grandfather. Oh, no, so she has a stream of consciousness oh, in oh. the middle of your... This sounds your like a perfect memo. <laughs> the, well, yes, and they appreciated the personal anecdotes. Interesting. They, well, like, they like to get to know the president. It, it sounds confusing to me. If I was reading that, I think that I would want to know... I would want you just to stick with the original topic. Uh, but if, you, if you're saying it's effective, and Virginia Woolf and Richard Nixon, if, if the two of you both did this... Uh, technique, then it must be effective on on some level. You're you were both so successful in your lives. Well, yes, I think it's probably just a, a layman thing. You don't understand it. It's yes. understandable. Yes, that makes sense. Yes. That makes sense. Uh, let me uh, uh, pivot over to you, uh, Mr. Nixon. So, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you're the only president to have ever resigned. Uh, got into a lot of trouble with Watergate, the subsequent cover up, and everything. And the general consensus is that you resigned because if you hadn't, you would have been impeached. Is that correct? Yes, unfortunately, that was inevitable. Of course, of course. That's totally understandable. Um, but I'm wondering, is there any part of you that thought things might have gone better if you had stayed and fought it out and just let the impeachment process happen? And, you know, because you were very, you're very uh, a hardworking and some would say conniving, Machiavellian kind of leader. Like, maybe there were some dealings you could have, uh, you know, finagled if you would just stayed in office and, you know, tried tried to, to fight the good fight. Oh, well, believe me, leaving office before my term was through was abhorrent to every instinct in my body. Mm. I wanted to stand there and fight those sons of bitches with everything I had, and I was. But when you lose the support of everybody in the whole country, really, mm. it, it seems like a losing battle, and I wasn't mm. about to sit there and lose to these sons of bitches. And so I rather just said, fuck you all, and I'm out of here. You said Fuck you all, and I'm out of here. Very often. This is well. That, that's this. I'm guessing that was the subtext because, oh. like, you gave a resignation speech that was much more eloquent. And, Sh well, you know, sure. But what I was thinking was, fuck you all, and <laughs> I'm out of here. And believe me, I said that at least fifty times per hour in the Oval Office. You did say that, but that was also the interior monologue while you were giving Constantly. the resignation speech. Constantly. Now, and I and I hate to do this, but you know, like we have this president now, guys. And it must just burn you up so much, Richard Nixon, that this guy is getting away with so much more yes. just because he's got this complicit Congress. Barack Obama. You know? No, 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 Virginia Woolf, not Barack Obama. <laughs> I'm talking about, I'm talking about our current president, Donald Trump. Oh, um, uh, and I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm just still so steamed up about Barack Obama. You were, I'm sorry, Virginia Woolf, you're angry about Barack Obama, president, former president of the United States. Unbelievable. What 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 do you hate about Barack Obama? Oh, I don't know. Perhaps that he wants to trample over our constitution. Does that <laughs> does that make you a little upset? I mean, Virginia Woolf, this sounds very much like uh, a a vague, the kind of vague criticism that people on the alt right had of Barack Obama because it was unfashionable just to be racist. Um, you know, if, you know, if you hold up a picture of him next to Hitler, not so different. No, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of difference between lock her up, <laughs> lock her up. My goodness, I never, Wolf, who please. knew Virginia Woolf was such a mod, I was such a conservative. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, you know, right? You can't put a label on me. I'm not any label, but I'm just saying. <laughs> apologies, apologies. <laughs> it really sounds like some uh, some some deep uh, alt right conspiracy theories. I'm sorry, um, you were you were you talking know. about uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, yeah. Uh, but well, I'm I would love to touch more on your political leanings uh, later on in the show. Uh, but does it just steam you like you you did a tenth 
of what Donald Trump has done. You were much sneakier about it. You were way better at covering your tracks. And yet because he's got a complicit Congress, Congress is all on his side. They're letting him get away with it. Does that steam you, Richard Nixon? Well, let me just say one thing. Mm -hmm. How do you like me now, bitches? <laughs> How what you guys wouldn't Coming give? What you wouldn't give to have a Richard Milhouse Nixon? Yeah, you know, for all your feelings, I, I I do appreciate that you were at least competent. You know, listen, I may have been a crook, but I could read for God's sakes. Yeah, you I could read, read the occasional book. I wrote books. You, you you had the values of a statesman, somebody who appreciated the soft hand of power. Thank you. I absolutely did. I went to China for God's sakes. No one else could have done that. No one could have pulled that off. Yeah, you started the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Like, that says something about your your marginal level of competence. And uh, as President Trump would say, most people don't know that. <laughs> and that's true. Most people don't know that. When they think of Richard Melhouse Nixon, all they think about is think Watergate. About Watergate. God damn it. Well, you know what? Let's, you know, pivot. We're going to talk about some other things in your life. Good. Just so we can we can fill out the uh, the rich tapestry that is former President Richard Milhouse Nixon. Thank you. Uh, but let's pivot over to uh, um, uh, Virginia Woolf here for just a moment. So uh, I understand you started writing very young when you were nine years old. Uh, you and your sister, your older sister, started the Hyde Park Gate News, uh, which was a fake newspaper that chronicled the life and events of your family. Is that right? Yes. So we had a slogan. Mm -hmm. All the news that's fit to Wolf. <laughs> So I'm so sorry. Uh, so you're saying that the slogan for the fake newspaper that you and your siblings started about your family uh, was the the Hyde Park Gate News was all the news that's fit to wolf. Oh, you even me. though I'm sorry, even though you did not marry Leonard Wolf and take that name until decades later in your life. I had a feeling, we all had a feeling that we'd be known as wolves as, 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 at the end of, when it was all said and done. Maybe sort of like your spirit animal in the, uh, um, I believe it was the Tom Thomas, is that right? That was the last name, the family name, Thomas? Yes. <laughs> but you were forgetting in the slogan there's a question mark. A question mark? So it's all the news that's fit to wolves? Ooh, okay. So, and it's a take on the New York Times slogan, all the news that's fit to print. Gotcha, which also I don't believe was in existence yet. But, I mean, I, I can understand how there's a zeitgeist in the air and everybody can just yes. sort of feel, Everyone's, you know, yes. that this is a thing that's going to happen, that's about to happen. Yes. Um, it, it was a watershed moment. You knew it was just, it was all happening, man. Mm -hmm. yeah, yes. So, I just wanted to clarify. I looked it up. It was Stephen. That was the maiden name. That you that you that you and your family would have had at the time, uh, but you guys you you felt like you were wolves. Yes, even at a young age, we were the wolf pack. That's the what we called ourselves. So we would shorten it to wolf, and then as luck would have it, it ended up being my last name. That must have been such kismet then. When kismet, you yes, fate, serendipity, <laughs> all of those things. Yeah, can you talk? Can you imagine, like you know, you you're you're a young girl. You you meet Leonard Wolf who was the man that would eventually be your husband, do you have that moment of just, like, connection where you're like, oh, my God, he's a wolf. We feel like we're wolves, you know? Is that is that sort of what happened when you when you met Leonard for the first time? Yes, it was electric. We were... Mm. My, my father took me and my family down to the local pub in London. It was called the 
pig and thistle. The pig and thistle. Thistle. Yes, the pig okay. and thistle. Mm-hmm. And we went down and my father was going to get one of his famous pints. And there he was. The most beautiful man I'd ever seen. Leonard Wolf. Yes. Mm. And at the same time, get this, at the same time, both he and I howled. You like, howled. We went, because we were so horny. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> Could, it was so, so horny. Unbelievably horny. And this is at a time when, when you, you were horny. Help it, you couldn't help but woo, how? You couldn't, it was just, you didn't know what to do with all of these uh, hormones. So we That's were incredible. so horny, we howled. And That's... that was sort of the beginning of it all. The kismet, as you say. That's incredible to hear. I do have a different story for how you and your husband sure. met from the Wikipedia, but sure. but if, if you're saying that that's, that's the, the real story, I believe your you. Story and, uh... But if you're just joining us uh, on Famous Dead People, um, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, the show, Famous Dead People. My guests today are uh, 37th President of the United States, Richard Nixon. Thank you. Happy to be here. And early 20th century English writer, Virginia Woolf. How dost thou do? <laughs> So uh, we will get to the, um, the, the story on the Wikipedia of how you met your husband. But I did want to ask you more about this newsletter, the Hyde Park Gate News, where you would write about your life, your, your family's life and stuff like that. And you're not only nine years old at this point. Uh, and so I'm wondering, like, what kind of stories about your family would you and your sister put in the Hyde Park Gate News? What sort of stories would you publish in it? Area Dad is a big fuckhead. <laughs> Sorry, what? Area dad is a big fuckhead. Virginia Woolf, you would put in this newsletter that your dad was a fuckhead? So if, if it felt like it, if he'd been cross with me that week, I'd write that. That'd be the headline, and that would be the front page. Um, oh another God. week, it might be uh, a local girl um, unable to attain cookies or biscuits. <laughs> We would call them biscuits. Yes, across the pond, we would call them biscuits. We call them biscuits. It's uh, tea time, a waste of time. <laughs> that was so, an editorial that my sister wrote. Hard hitting editorials. Yes, this sounds this sounds great. I really wish that there were some uh, surviving copies of that uh, of that newsletter. Yeah, there's not. It's, it sounds really charming. Uh, but let's go back over to uh, President Nixon for just a moment. So you famously said of your upbringing, uh, "quote We were poor." But the glory of it was we didn't know it. And I'm wondering, um, you know, if if your early life when you were if what you're referring to there is the, the innocence of children or if, you know, like your parents actively did anything to hide the fact that they were poor from you. Like, how exactly did you as as children growing up not know how dire your straits were? Well, this will be hard for you to believe, but there was a lot of lying that went on in the Nixon family. Really? Well, a little bit. They tried to protect us from the fact that we were dirt poor. Now, see, I wouldn't say that that's lying. I think that's just, you know, the, the, the gentle hand of parenthood, you know, guiding children into, you know, happy adolescence. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I never use the word lying. In mm. fact, um, they were protecting us from ourselves. Gotcha. If I had known that I was a little poor child, I don't know what I would have done with myself. I mean, I already felt insignificant. And lower than all of my classmates. If I had known mm. I was poor, I damn well may have offed myself. Oh, wow. Yes, and, it was I mean, big. The big. world would have been deprived of, uh, of uh, President Richard Nixon. And, and what know, would they have done? What would we have done? Um, and so, yeah, so what were some of the, um, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call them lies. Maybe, maybe how was it that your family would sort of like direct the children into not realizing that they were 
of a lower economic status. Well, uh, my mother used to tell me that I was the best-looking boy in school. She also told me that I could be anything I wanted to be. I mean, those seem like, you know, just things... Blatant lies. At least one of those is true. Blatant lies. Well, the fact of the matter is I wanted to be an athlete. More than anything, I wanted to be an athlete. Yes, I did read that you were a basketball player, you were a football player, you you played all the sports when you were kids. And despite never really scoring, I thought I was the best. I was told I was the best. So you you did not do well in these games. You wouldn't score points. You wouldn't score touchdowns. You wouldn't get the ball in the hoop in basketball. No, but what I did do was strategize against the other team. Ooh, interesting. Yes, I uh, spent the week before finding out who their coach was, Ooh, uh, looking into his background, hmm. finding out who he was married to, what he did for a living, and then I just went at that son of a bitch with everything I had. Didn't help much because on the court it came down to plays, but I felt good about it. I was contributing in my own way. Wait, so would you try to blackmail the coach of the other team? Well, now, blackmail. That's another term I don't use. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Let's. Uh... I just tried to reveal the truth. Okay. And... and sometimes the truth is ugly. Gotcha. And so you would say, like, maybe I have this information about you, and it would be a terrible thing if it got out. Make me look bad today. Mm-hmm. And your life is over. Gotcha. I'll make sure of it. Gotcha. And and they still, you still didn't win any games. You still didn't. Uh... We won occasionally. Gotcha. I, it was just never thanks to me. And the coaches never really gave a shit about what I had to say because those sons of bitches thought they were better than me. Mm-hmm. Well, how do they like me now? I was the president. <laughs> they weren't. Uh, yeah. No, that's incredible. Um, it's like that Toby Keith song. Exactly. What, what Toby Keith song? How do you like me now? Is that a Toby Keith song? How do you like me now? It is. I believe so, yes. My One of my favorites. How You Like Me Now. That's, um, yeah, I just wouldn't expect there to be a country song called How You Like Me Now. Um, but, hey, you know, it's 2018. There's all sorts these days. Um, it's like a 25-year-old song. <laughs> is it a 25-year-old song? Well, 20. how about that? Isn't my face red? Um, do, I mean, can you believe the embarrassment of not knowing a Toby <laughs> Keith song? Toby Keith song? I can. I can, actually. I'm yeah. embarrassed mostly because I've actually eaten at the Toby Keith restaurant in Las Vegas. I did not know there was a Toby Keith restaurant. Yeah, it's I'm the, so embarrassed. It's at the Harrah's. And I think it's called Toby Keith's Restaurant Bar and Grill. Like, I think it's just... Original. Yeah, yeah. Original name. <laughs> it's going to just be what it's Imaginative. called. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, now, uh, President Nixon. Please. So a lot of struggle and early disappointment in your life. We've already touched on that with the uh, the basketball and the, and the football. Um, you went to Whittier College, even though you were offered a full ride to Harvard because your family didn't have the money. Uh, didn't have the money for a full ride. <laughs> he had to help out of the grocery store, Virginia Wolf. Uh-huh. I am picking up what you're doing. Oh, uh, but the, the one that I wanted to ask you about was since we have such a, a notable, what a cool uh, family. <laughs> you can't go to Harvard. We need your help at the grocery store. Well, in, in my parents' defense, my two brothers did drop dead. I was the only one there to help. Yeah, yeah. Virginia Wolf, have a little bit of sympathy for Richard. I Nixon, would have done know? the same if I were your brothers. I would have dropped <laughs> Sorry, dead. Myself. You would have dropped dead. I wouldn't think that you would be so cavalier about people dropping dead. Like eight members of your family, the people that you love the most, just started dying. Sort of dropping like flies. You're making fun of Richard Nixon for his for his that, siblings dying. That made a big splash in the Hyde <laughs> Hyde Park gate. <laughs> oh, really? All the all the deaths. <laughs> it would be like, oh, uh, uh, mother upset after there's smudge in her freshly mopped floor, and then the second page would be like, brother's dead. <laughs> so 
<laughs> the brothers dying didn't even make the front page Never. of the family newsletter. That is unbelievable. It just didn't get the. It wasn't good clickbait, you know. Exactly. Mm, it didn't. Uh, didn't, didn't get the eyes didn't on the get, page. Didn't get the eyeballs. Gotcha. I understand. Um, but yeah, what I wanted to ask you about, since we have such an incredible literary figure here, Virginia Woolf, is uh, that you were snubbed by the Literary Society at Whittier. You wanted to join the Literary Society, uh, and there was a male Literary Society called the Franklins that they didn't let you in. Um, did you ever find out why you weren't admitted into the Franklin Literary Society? Not really, not the truth. Okay. But I kind of let that go because, as you may as well know, I did start my own society. Oh, you started your own literary society. Yes, the better society. The better society, you called it. I absolutely did, because it absolutely was. Mm -hmm. And we had our own group. We did the same things. We just did them our own way. Gotcha. It was basically all the rejects from the Whittier society. This feels a lot like uh, that movie Revenge of the Nerds, where all the nerds don't get into a frat. It makes you think of that. So they start their own frat, and they end up winning like the big frat games at the end of the movie. Oh, yes. Is, this, is that sort of similar to what you experienced? Exactly. Only we didn't win much. Okay. But well, there's nothing win in a literary society. You're just reading books. Well, it's all about winning. Okay. It's how would, all about winning. How would you win in a literary society? And I mean, maybe Virginia Woolf, you probably have experience with this. I mean, you had your own uh, you know, literary society growing up as well. So Yes, if usually when I'd finish reading a final draft of my manuscript, I'd slam dunk it, then I'd dab <laughs> on them. I'd dab on them. Oh, my. I would love to see that. That's you, incredible. That's how you win. Is that how, is that sort of similar things that you would do in your better literary society? Oh, Richard yes. Nixon? There was plenty of dancing, plenty mm. of dancing, plenty of fun. Gotcha. I would play the piano. I would read out loud. Okay, fun, fun. Right. It was a party all the time. But how, and would you, how would you win, though? How was it about winning in, right, the, in right. the better society? Well, basically, it was about getting people to want to be in our society over those other sons of bitches. Gotcha, popularity. The snobbery. I understand. Right. I can see how, you know, you get more people in your society than in the Franklins. Exactly. Franklins start looking around like like the rich, cool frat that suddenly no one wants to go to their parties, like in the movie Accepted. Oh, exactly you know like what I'm talking that. about? Exactly Accepted. like Accepted. Yeah, that's a great... One of my favorites. Highly underrated college movie. One of my Accepted. favorites. Uh, what year is that? I believe that was 2004. Four or five, something like that. And who we got starring in that? Oh, you, you have got oh, you. Uh, a young Jonah Hill. Mm. You have got a young Blake Lively. Oh. You have got um, a young Justin Long. Oh, uh, yeah. oh my! That is that is uh, a choice, <laughs> a college, a cast. Okay, if you, if you are feeling what I'm putting down. I'm feeling it. it. I'm (laughs) feeling it. We're feeling it. You have to watch Accept It. It's great. But, you know, I digress. We've got to get back to our guests. Um, So, uh, you know, Virginia Woolf, uh, as we talked about a little bit before, a lot of uh, sadness in your life with your family uh, passing away. Your mother tragically passes away when you're 13 years old. And so your half-brother, George Duckworth, uh, takes it upon himself to present you to high society, uh, gives you the whole debutante ball treatment but you don't like it is that correct yes didn't care for all those snobs snobbing mm-hmm. around gotcha what was it exactly that bothered you about you know debutante society and you know, like being paraded around being introduced when you come of age that sort of thing well it was just so demeaning mm-hmm. you know i thought i'm not some trophy i'm not some i'm not some you know uh some prize pig that you can st- just parade around with a little bow on it. 
I've got a brain in here. That's right. An Up incredible here, brain. Yes. And I've got stories to write and mm-hmm. streams of consciousness to go down. And that makes me think of... <laughs> I didn't care for the debutante ball. That's what that makes me think of. Ooh, is it is it often that your stream of consciousness would just bring you to the thing you were just talking about? So if I'm saying like, you know, oh, the other day I went and got a hamburger, and that makes me think of how hungry I was for hamburgers. Sometimes it's a short stream. So that's a short stream of consciousness. Not but a river. It's not a river of consciousness. No, it's a just stream. a trickling stream of consciousness. But you know what? They all lead to the ocean of truth. Oh, wow. It seems like you and Nixon were both very interested in discovering truth. Yes. And paying homage to and truth. slam dunking on sons of bitches. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> on exactly. sons of bitches. Absolutely. Making other fools into jive turkeys so that the world can see how jive turkeys they are, right? And how big heroes we have become. And how big heroes you have become. You better believe it. You know, we have to go to break, but if you had if you had to say really quickly how you became a huge hero in your life, Richard Nixon, what would you what would you say? Well, I was a I was a congressman. I was the vice president. I was the president. I was the king of the world. Mm, well, not the last one. That you were all the other ones before that. I was the king of my world. Okay, the king of Richard Nixon's world. And and Virginia Woolf, we gotta go to break, but how would you say uh that you were the big winner in your life, that you were the champion? I wrote a lot of great books. They named a play after me. Ooh. <laughs> Who's afraid of me? Everyone's afraid of me. They did the same for me, by the way. No, I can't wait to hear about that. Um, unfortunately, we got to take a short break, but we will be right back on Famous Dead People with Virginia Woolf and President Richard Nixon. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, just want to take a quick break to remind you to subscribe to Famous Dead People on iTunes or whatever app you are using to listen to podcasts, rate us five stars, leave a comment, tell your friends, all that stuff helps us out a ton. And feel free to hit us up at FamousDeadPeople at RadioForBrooklyn.org if you want a specific Famous Dead person on the show or if you have any comments that you want to shoot over to us, whatever we love hearing from fans. Uh, Also, check out my book, The Kellyanne Conway Technique. It is out now. It is hilarious. I hope that you will check that out and read that and uh, leave reviews, awesome reviews on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or whatever and tell your friends to read it because it's super funny and I want that money. Also, go check out JarrettBarrenson.com for all the latest on my show dates and uh, up-to-date project information. And lastly, if you really like Famous Dead People and you want to send us some money to help keep the show on the air, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash Famous Dead People and click on the Support This Show button. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the podcast. Welcome back to Famous Dead People on Radio Free Brooklyn. Famous Dead People, the only show that resurrects famous people from the grave and asks them all the hard questions. I'm your host, Jarrett Berenstein, and we are here every Monday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. My guests in the studio today are 37th President of the United States and the only president to have ever resigned from office, Richard Nixon. Not a crook. And uh, early 20th century English writer, Virginia Woolf. A big old crook. (laughs) Are you a crook, Virginia Woolf? Aren't we all crooks? How would I, no? I'm, I am not one. Except no, for him, Richard Nixon, not a crook. But you're saying that you are a crook, Virginia Woolf. Well, you know, when you're in the creative field and mm-hmm. you're coming up with words, sometimes you feel like a bit of a crook mm. because, in the end, it's just you're just making things up. Yeah, I can understand that. Even I, at your most successful, deep down, you're like, I'm a bit of a crook. Well, I think that speaks maybe towards your 
you know, depressive episodes and maybe you feeling undeserving of the success that you had. Is that accurate? Do you think it's a fair thing to say, Virginia Woolf? I think it is fair. Yes, I, I don't, you know... Yes, I guess in the end we're going to have to talk about my depressive yes. episode. Yes, I mean, you did suffer from bipolar disorder. You would have your, your, your deep depressions. You would have your occasional manic episodes. And I'm sure that that made you feel on some level that you didn't deserve the success that you had. Yes, I, you know, I'd, I'd lock myself in my room and I'd just cry. Wah, wah, wah. I'm not successful. I shouldn't be all as successful as I am. And that's sort of what bipolar disorder is all about, <laughs> is locking yourself in your room and going, wah, wah, wah. You know, your tone that you're taking right now, uh, Virginia Woolf, it just seems like you don't have any respect for the emotional turmoil that you were going through at the time. Is that a fair assessment, would you say? I mean, that's part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, I, but you know, I do fully respect these diagnoses and all of the depression. Because, oh, wah, wah, I'm depressed. Wah, wah, I want to kill myself. It really doesn't sound like you're taking it seriously. No, I take it very seriously. <laughs> wah, wah, I've got borderline personality disorder. Now, Richard Nixon, I mean, you're, you're aware of Virginia Woolf's work. You know that she was uh, a successful writer, an incredible groundbreaking writer. Would you would you tell Virginia Woolf that she that she deserves the success that she had, that it's, that the depression is just a... Uh, it's just making her feel like she's a failure? Well, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, yes, you, of course, deserve all all the respect you get. And I think I deserve everything I've got. Mm -hmm. I uh, earned everything I've got. In fact, if I was wah, wah, wahing, it was about the fact that I didn't get more praise, didn't get more respect. Mm -hmm. I deserved more than I got. Well, that is a completely thank you. Uh, it's wonderfully honest. And I'm really glad you did that. But I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to help Virginia Woolf oh, yes. back from the precipice here. Right. So if you would just say say Virginia Woolf, you deserve the success you have. You only feel this way because you're depressed. Oh, Miss Wolf, you deserve everything you've got. You only feel this way. What was it? Because you're depressed. Oh, because you are <laughs> depressed. That's why you feel this way. You deserve it all. Yeah, see, Richard Nixon is telling you this, Virginia Woolf. Maybe, maybe that'll help you get out, get out of the doldrums, and make you feel like you deserve what you have. I'll be honest; that helps, especially oh, from such so a glad. such a self-made man. And the moral, you know, compass. The moral of the compass. Country. Of, of the course, <laughs> of course. Next time I'm in my room, going way, 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 I'll think of you, Richard oh, Nixon. That's <laughs> And I'll hop right out of my my bed or my my day bed in my salon, mm -hmm. and I'll I'll get back to work. Now, now um, I know that um, uh, you know Virginia Woolf was talking earlier about the moment that she met her future husband Leonard Woolf, and how they both howled because of how horny they were. And I, I hope that that didn't offend you. President Nixon, because I read on your Wikipedia that after college you went into law, you were an attorney, and I read that you were reluctant to work on divorce cases because you, quote, disliked frank sexual talk from women. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Okay, so oh. you do not like it. It just, uh, well, it's unbecoming. Gotcha. It's gotcha. unbecoming of a woman to speak that way publicly. Okay, and so... Or privately. Did you not care for it when Virginia Woolf was talking about how horny she and her oh. future husband were for each other? Well, uh, in that case, 
it uh, if that's how she felt, and it was the story of how how she met her husband. So I understand it. I understand. I get a free pass on that. A free pass, <laughs> indeed, indeed. It made me uncomfortable, but I'm I'm just I'm just me. Well, what sort of things were you hearing in these uh, divorce cases from women that were so upsetting you at the time? Oh, everything, everything mm. from he slaps me to he didn't vote Republican. Okay, these don't sound like sexual things, though. Like, oh. like you specifically said you just liked Frank's sexual talk from women, right? Yes, um, but these just sound like these just sound like grievances, like divorce grievances. Well, yes, I. Well, okay. If you really want to know, I did not like hearing about the vagina. Oh, yes. Gotcha. A lot of women were complaining that they didn't, they weren't getting the pleasure they felt they deserved, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I just. Didn't agree. Wait, so you're saying that the women in these divorce cases would talk openly about their vaginas? Constantly. Really? Constantly. I just have to say, when Richard Nixon just said <laughs> vagina, my vagina shriveled up inside of me. And I think it Thank you. I don't think that's a fair thing to say. Oh, you think that's a compliment, Richard Nixon? I, I really don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to say thank you. Wow. Yeah, no, that's incredible. Mrs. Nixon says the same thing to me all the time. She says that when you say vagina, it causes her vagina to to to, to tighten up and and then uh, shut like a vice? Well, certainly if I say vagina. Gotcha, but gotcha. she just means when I get into bed every night. Gotcha, gotcha. And so you thought that that was a nice thing to say? Well, I would hope so. Mrs. Nixon <laughs> loves me. I see. She supports me. I just can't believe that back then these women were going into the divorce cases and talking so openly about their vaginas. Is this something that you had experience with as well? Like, did you know people who were divorced back in the uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, Virginia Woolf? It was very rare, but when, but I did know a couple of divorcees. Mm-hmm. And you're asking, did, did, did their divorce proceedings get highly sexual? Yeah. Yes, it was required. The judge would say, and what manner? And it was this was a magistrate because we're, we're so of in course London. They, of course, they had the the, wig. uh, the wigs on, oh, and the wig black robes, and, and everything. They were like forty feet in the air, <laughs> and their and their little uh, platform thing, whatever you call it. And mm-hmm. they would they bang that gavel, and they'd say, "Now, you woman, tell me of the bedroom conquests between you and your betrothed." <laughs> and the woman would say, "You know, for example." When my husband comes to bed, he takes off his nightgown and his nightcap and his slippers and he puts down this candle that he brings to bed and then he comes at me fully erect (laughs) and we make love in one position, the position where he is on top, thrusting hither and thither. And that would be a norm. That would be like more on the racy side. Mm, gotcha. That, Sometimes that, it would get racy. That's as racy as it, is that. Is that about as racy as you were hearing when you were doing the divorce cases uh, in America, Mister Nixon, President uh, Nixon? Yes, about like that. It made me very uncomfortable. Oh, to hear this reenactment. Oh yes. Involved, oh uh, yes. Well, you you maintained composure. I think that's that's one of the things that was uh, that we're missing in our presidency right now. It's something that you know. Uh, I, I wish that we could bring that level of of self-control into the White House again. One of many things Mm -hmm. we're missing today. (laughs) So uh, going back to Virginia Woolf, so after your mother and father pass away, uh, you and your siblings decide to get a house together and you start entertaining a group of intellectual friends that come to be known as the Bloomsbury Group. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and so the Bloomsbury Group, I'm guessing it was similar to... Uh, you know, Nixon's uh, literary society where you would read books and talk about new ideas and things like that. Is that right? Yes, and, and me and my siblings being on, on our own, it was uh, actually the basis for Party of Five. Wait, that Television TV show, show yes. was, was, was based on 
you and your siblings, yes, the the Thomas siblings, yes. soon to be soon to be Stephen Stevens, yes, that's Stevens? right, Stevens, the Wolfpack, sorry. the Wolfpack, the Wolfpack, the Wolfpack. Uh, all living together after your parents pass away. Yes, but it was like that television show, but it was, it, it was you know, there was more reading and playing piano, as, as Richard Nixon said. And mm. it was just, it was really just a groovy time. A groovy time. Except for my parents both being dead. Yes, and of course... Um, but even I, that, it was like, no parents, woo <laughs> Groovy. <laughs> groovy! So, so then, while you were in the Bloomsbury group, and you're saying that it was very similar to Party of Five, which unfortunately is a TV show that I did not watch. It's just about five people, five you kids, know, five that kids live in their home, die, and they live alone. Mm-hmm. They're figuring it out. Gotcha. Did you have any experience with Party of Five, Richard Nixon? One of my favorite shows. Okay. One of my favorite shows. And so, would you be able to tell us about a moment from Party of Five, and we can see if there's an analogous moment? to when Virginia Woolf and her siblings were living in the house by themselves. Well, my favorite scene in the whole series was one where they were playing the piano, mm-hmm. singing about their dead parents. <laughs> that, that, I'm sorry, that happened in Party of Five? Oh, yes, it's my favorite scene. Wait, so which one was, I know, was it Nev Campbell was in that? And, she, um, was. she was. Uh, Beautiful Love Hewitt. And uh, Matthew, Matthew Fox. Fox. That's right, who would later go on to be in Lost, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, and so they're all sitting around the piano singing about their dead parents is it like a sad song are they like oh woe is us it was pretty groovy it's a groovy Um, song oh yes because they were paying homage to those parents like let's let's celebrate their lives celebrate good times come on okay it was actually to the tune of celebrate celebration (laughs) oh that's (laughs) cool 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 in the game wow our parents are dead come on come on oh yes celebrate now I can yes. see it. I can see it now. It yeah. was a beautiful episode. I'm glad that both the kids in Party of Five and Virginia Woolf and her Wolfpack siblings uh, were able to enjoy their lives, even in the face of such senseless tragedy. And of course, your, uh, you know, chronic uh, debilitating depression. Wow. Um, <laughs> I believe that you also pulled a prank together, right? The Bloomsbury group pulled a prank uh, oh, a bit of hijinks. I didn't think you'd dig this up. Where you pretended to be a group of uh, Abyssinian royals and got the navy to give you a tour of their of their flagship, the Dreadnought. Is that correct? <laughs> what a bunch of fucking idiots! <laughs> so you, Virginia Wolf, you got dressed up, and I, I saw in the picture that you're wearing a fake beard. Uh, in in the picture, so you actually disguise yourself as a man. Yes. Mm-hmm. Go went the other way with it. You'd think, oh, I just dress up as a fancy lady. Mm-hmm. No, a man. Yeah. And I'm getting on the dreadnought. Okay. And so, like, what happened on the tour? Like, were you guys just is was that as far as the prank went? You just wanted to be shown around. Pretty shown around the well. Boat? Yes. They, they had, the admiral came down and he said, uh, over over here, we've got a well. This this is the cabin where the, the, the first officer sleeps, and I would go, whoa, mm, yeah, mm, and I would stroke my beard, and I'd be like, oh yes, mm, ha ha, and um, and then he'd be like, this here is the crow's nest where we're able to see other ships, and uh, and I would just go, mm, very good, very good, uh, and and um. And I stole a lot from that I'm shit. Sorry, you stole a lot? Yeah, I stole a lot oh, of so the items. You were a crook. You were a crook, Virginia Woolf. I was literally a crook. What did you steal from the boat? 
I stole all of the guns they had on board. You stole all of the guns they had on this Navy ship? The dreadnought was destroyed hours later. They said, oh, well, the Abyssinian royal family. So then the dreadnought went out to go be in a war after you had stolen all the guns? Oh, sorry, we've got to go. We're being called to war. And I thought to myself, let's see how you do in war without your guns, <laughs> you bunch of you bunch of wankers. I can't believe you stole all the guns off the dreadnought. What, what, how could you not? You've gotten that far. It just feels like there's so many guns. Like you wouldn't be able to hold them all. I had a very big shirt that a day. Big shirt, right? We've all walked into a grocery store wearing a big shirt or a big jacket, and you walk out. With like a whole turkey or something, you know. And it was such a good, cool prank because then it was like <laughs> that now all of those men's families, they're all orphans. Now they're all just like you guys. Just like us. Oh, my God. It was hilarious. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I didn't watch a lot of Party of Five, but I did see that episode where all the Party of Five kids dressed up like royals and got a tour of a boat and made a lots of other orphans because that boat then went into battle without any guns. You know, this is a pretty good episode. It was probably the best one. <laughs> pretty good episode. That was their bottle episode. Uh, now, I'm sorry, the bottle episode? Yeah, you know, on TV where they do all of it in one location. Right. They did it all on the boat. I didn't think it was called the bottle episode, but I'm with you on this. Uh, now, President uh, Nixon. Yes. So I'd like to ask you about your second presidential campaign because you, you ran for president against John F. Kennedy. You're narrowly defeated. Very close race. Then you run a second time in 1968 against uh, Hubert Humphrey. Mm-hmm. And it's a close race. And Johnson, uh, I read on the Wikipedia, had a plan to end the Vietnam War right before the election to help Humphrey get elected. And there's some debate historically as to whether or not you tried to stop the Vietnamese from, uh, from, from being involved in the peace process just so that you could win the presidency. And, you know, there's debate. Not This isn't a settled issue. And so I'd like to ask you, point blank, did you sabotage ending the Vietnam War in an attempt to win the presidential campaign in 1968? Well, let me just put this to bed right here. Okay. No, you, I did you not sabotage anything. Wow. So I had somebody else do it. <laughs> you have to cover your ass. You have to cover your ass. Now, That's why I'm President not a Nixon, President Nixon, what? I feel like we're splitting hairs here. Oh, no. Oh, no. I do feel like we're splitting hairs because if you hired somebody to do it, you still did it. Oh, no. That I, was still you. There was no money exchanged. Okay. So, and by the way, mm-hmm. I don't control other people, at least not, <laughs> not, not that you know of. Mm-hmm. And so if they commit crimes... They are the crooks. I am not a crook. This is interesting. Now, I, I do want to touch more on this. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, listening to Famous Dead People on Radio Free Brooklyn, my guests today are early 20th century English writer Virginia Woolf. Reading is fun. And former president of the United States, Richard Nixon. Celebrate good times. Celebrate good times. Come so on. you were saying mm-hmm. that you did not do anything to sabotage the peace process in Vietnam, but you did hire somebody to sabotage the peace process in Vietnam, right? Look, you gotta do what you gotta do to win a campaign. Nobody wanted a president, Hubert Humphrey. I mean, give me a goddamn break. I mean, some people wanted a a, a president, Hubert Humphrey. You only won that election by like 500,000 votes, which is... Hey. It's a pretty good margin. At least I got more votes, unlike the current president squatting in the White House. That's a really good point. At least you got the popular vote. And I... Basically, 
save the country. A President mm. Hubert Humphrey would have been a disaster. Oh, possibly. You never know. I mean, it would have been a disaster. Someone, I'm sure, could write some great historical fiction about that, you sure. know, to discover uh, that. But what exactly— You're looking at me when you say that. <laughs> Who else? Saying, you, you're, you're a great fiction writer. Please smile. I'm okay. I'll write a <laughs> Hubert Humphrey biography. Mm-hmm. Well, well, historical fiction. Historical fiction. Yeah. Okay, I'll do it. Thank I'm you for doing your of consciousness. Well, you don't have to do it right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll do it in my head. What an honor okay. for him. <laughs> so, uh, so what exactly did you have this person, this this mysterious person, do to sabotage the peace process in Vietnam so that you could get elected president? Well, basically, I just had them convince the people in Vietnam that I had a better plan. A okay. secret plan, but a better plan. Mm-hmm. And they bought it. I couldn't believe it, but they bought it, so they held off. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem all that diabolical. Like, you just had somebody go over there and say, listen, this peace process seems pretty good, but there is an even better peace process coming if President Nixon gets elected. That was it? That was it, and it worked, and it was true. Although I didn't have a plan, and there was no plan to end the war, but— they didn't know that, and they knew that I'd be a better commander-in-chief, mm-hmm. and I was. God the Vietnamese it. knew this. Oh, yes. Interesting. The world knew it. Everyone hated <laughs> Hubert Humphrey. I don't care how many votes he got. I mean, that's a. I mean, that's a, uh, an look, interesting take on that. Look at our records as mm-hmm. vice presidents. Okay. I was under Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yes. A wonderfully respected man, a military man. Mm-hmm. He was under... An accidental president. Yes, Johnson. That's mm-hmm. right. Well, Johnson was elected barely. The once. Once, you know. But yes, but he became president under accidental terms. That's true. Yeah. But I mean, we shouldn't hold that against him, you know. Oh, please. Like, like, yeah. Oh, oh please. I hold anything against everybody. Really? They do the same to me. This is the cutthroat, uh, no holds barred. No tricky, holds barred. Tricky dick attitude hey. that you are famous uh, for, Richard Nixon. Please. <laughs> If you're going to win, you got to do what you got to do. You know, it does seem like all of the early failures in your life just sort of like taught you that you should do anything that you that you can to win, right? Well, I'm not sure what failures you're talking about. Oh, I'm just saying about like, you know, uh, not being able to go to Harvard, not getting onto the football team. Oh, uh, I was on know. the team. I was the strategist. You I was the strategist. strategist on the football team. I made team. sure I got on the team. Look, mm-hmm. I did the best I could do with the circumstances I was given. Yeah, no, I'm, nobody is arguing that you were an incredibly hard worker uh, and a Machiavellian brilliance to you. Oh, well, thank but you I'm that. just saying it seems like those early tragedies kind of made you into the conniving and manipulative person that you would eventually become. Well, uh, I wouldn't use those words. Of course not, but, you know, President Nixon. Yes, if you want to get into the psychology, I'm sure my mother and father had an impact. My brother's dying. Mm-hmm. I had to make up for the lost time. I'm wondering why that didn't happen to Virginia Woolf, because you also had, like, a lot of hardships. You had all these people that were so close to you passing away. There's some uh, speculation that you were sexually abused when you were young, and yet that didn't make you the same kind of, like, um, a bitter, do-anything-to-win person that Richard Nixon became, you just kind of fell into your depression and your manic episodes. Just different cultures, you different know? Different cultures, that's right. America taught Richard Nixon how to be Richard Nixon. It's America that yeah. made him the way he is, whereas in Britain it's more just, um, you know, what you're going to do, mm-hmm. you know? It's just you can't get out of your station, as we call it. Yeah. You can't, you can't take... You can't just hop on a lift and go up a station. You can't run for queen. 
You can't you can't do that. You know what? I think you can run for queen. And I think that the only reason why nobody has is because of that attitude. Like Richard Nixon, if you were alive, if you were a woman in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you had gotten it in your craw to run for queen, do you think that you could have run for queen? You bet your ass I could have run for queen and I yeah. would have won. Wow. It would have been the most beautiful queen of all time. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, and I, I just want to say one thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would do almost anything to win. And I would hire people to do literally anything mm-hmm. to win. But once I got into office... I at least knew how to do some stuff. Yes. You have to hand that to me. I feel like nowadays we're at a point where it's all about winning. And then once you win, you just kind of make kind it of up fumble there the ball. and then yeah. try and win again. That's not how it works. You have to do the job. I did yeah. the job. And I do have respect for you for that. Thank and you. now we are uh, uh, running out of time. I'd like to ask you, Virginia Woolf, about uh, the moment that you met your husband again. Because remember how I said earlier that the story that you told, while beautiful and I'm sure is the truth, it doesn't line up with what's in the Wikipedia. So I'd like to ask you about that. So uh, according to the Wikipedia, in 1904, you and Leonard uh, Wolf, you're having dinner at a place called Gordon Square. And uh, and Leonard Cohen, and sorry, Leonard Wolf, not Leonard Cohen, uh, Leonard said that you were perfectly silent for the whole dinner and you looked ill. Is that the same night that you say that you met at the pub and, and started howling like a wolf, or is this a different night that he's remembering? Same night. It was the same night. We howled at each other, and then he said, you've got to come with me to my favorite restaurant, Gordon Square. Okay. And I said, okay, fine. Now, Gordon Square, where fish sticks were invented. Interesting. Gordon's fish sticks. I didn't know that. Come from Gordon Square. Huh. The reason I looked ill and didn't say anything is I ate some of those fish sticks. I see. Not good. Not good. Gotcha, gotcha. I was ill. Mm-hmm. And so and so at that point, you were completely silent. You did the howl at the beginning. It was very horny. <laughs> then <laughs> Super horny. Then it transitioned into, oh, no, I'm ill. I'm going to soil my pantaloons. Oh, my goodness. And so I was like, I can't. Mm-hmm. I just met the wolf, the newest member of my wolf pack. <laughs> wolf pack, right. So, so um, I read that he proposed marriage pretty early on. Um, and you kept on delaying whether or not you were going to marry him. Kept on pushing it and pushing it back. And then in a letter that you wrote, Leonard, in 1912, uh, a full eight years later, um, you explain why you didn't favor getting married. Do you remember this letter that you wrote to Leonard? Yes, it was stream of consciousness. Really? Yes. Okay, so would you would you mind uh, telling us a little bit about what was in this letter? Sure. So I just, I jotted down, it was, okay, this is sort of, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but it's stream of consciousness. Of course. So it was, dearest Leonard, I am so sorry I wasn't as into marriage as you were. It's just, I wasn't feeling well that first night with the Gordon's Fisherman fish sticks, which makes me think of how I want to be a famous writer. So I can't get married because I've got my career to focus on, which makes me think of focus, focus features, focus features, bringing you some of the best independent film of all time, which makes me think of time, which makes me think of, Time is on all of our sides. The Rolling Stones, which makes me think of the um, stoned, which makes me think of I'd like to get stoned, which makes me think, let's just get married. Wow. So in the letter 
that you wrote to Leonard Wolf saying why you didn't want to get married, you stream of conscious yourself into wanting to get married? Yes. That's incredible. It, the mind is a powerful thing. Sometimes it, really it makes you get married. Sometimes it makes you go to your room and go, whoa, wah, oh, wah, wah, wah. So I have one last question that I want to ask you about your husband. Um, so I read that, and this is just, it's, you know, I'm not trying to throw it in under the bus here, you know, and don't feel uh, obligated to soften your answer because of, because of who I am. But I read that in your wedding vows, you called your husband a penniless Jew. <laughs> Do you remember Virginia Woolf calling your future husband, Leonard Wolf a penniless Jew in your wedding vows? Look, <laughs> there was a time. It was a different time. It was a different time. I understand it was a different time. You're going around and you were just calling everyone penniless Jews. And it's, <laughs> it was okay then. Yes, I understand. It's, it's different time. It's gotten so different PC time. now. Yeah. Everyone gets angry when I call them a penniless Jew like and then chant, lock her up. It's like you're not allowed to say anything anymore, you know? I, you know, I've. It's awkward saying this to you, but it's true. <laughs> Listen, I completely understand historical context. Like maybe it was just like a gentle tease to call your husband a penniless Jew at the time. Is that fair? That's fair. And and if if I'm being honest, I would argue it's still a harmless <laughs> thing to do. I mean, I would take offense to somebody calling me a penniless Jew today in 2018. <laughs> Right, Mr. Nixon? Like, that's that's not a nice thing to say to somebody, right? Not a nice thing to say. Uh, not a good thing to say in public. I know in you public. Would, I'm you sorry, would in say, public, President Nixon? Uh, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, you got to call people what they are. If they are penniless, they Do are penniless. you got to call people what they are? Well, perhaps not in public, but um, yes. Look, some people are penniless. That, some people are Jews. Some people. Put them together. <laughs> and you got Leonard Wolf. Your future husband. I was a penniless Quaker. Hmm. Early yeah. time in my life. No one's offended by saying that. No one's offended Thank by you. calling you a penniless Quaker. And I was a wealthy Protestant Englishwoman. <laughs> Listen, we've got only 30 seconds left before we got to end the episode. Uh, Richard Nixon, would you tell us one thing that was in the 18 minutes of deleted tape that, that was submitted to the Watergate hearings? Well, let's see. Well, the story of how Mrs. Nixon and I met was in that 18 minutes. I'm be, just, uh, was that part of the stream of consciousness? I'm totally torn up that it was taken out. It was a beautiful story. Wow. But that's basically it. Nothing important. So it was deleted because... Oh, I don't just know. Just for time. Just Totally for an accident. Gotcha. Totally an accident. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this week's episode of Famous Dead People. I'd like to thank my guests, uh, President Nixon and Virginia Woolf, for joining me in the studio today. Uh, I always have one final question. I know it's a little bit weird, but I'd like to end my show by asking my guests if they have anything... And they like comedy shows or radio shows or whatever that they like to, to tell people about. Uh, President Nixon, you have anything you want people to, to check out? Well, I would suggest they check out a, a show called The Next Best Thing. It airs actually right on this network, Radio Free Brooklyn, every Monday night from 10 until midnight. Great show. Check it out. And uh, Virginia Woolf, anything you want to tell people about? There's a show called Jet Comes to Cobbsville at the UCB Theater. That's the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Hell's Kitchen. And it's April 26th, May 17th, and May 30th. It's hilarious. That is wonderful. Uh, I'm, of course, your host, Jared Berenstein. You should check out my website, jaredberenstein.com. Go out and buy my book, The Kill Ann Conway Technique. It is out now. It is hilarious. Uh, check out my improv team, Junior Varsity, every Thursday at 7 p.m. at the Magnet Theater. Rate and review the podcast. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for the live Famous Dead People that is going to be happening on 
May 7th at the Crane Theater at 8 p.m. Stay posted for more information on that. If you have any questions you'd like to ask your favorite dead person, please email that to us at famousdeadpeople at radiofreebrooklyn.org. We'll try to have them on as soon as we can. We're here every Monday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.